So as many of you are aware, I, I was on a mission trip last week in Guatemala and into this week. I was there with my son Jack and some of his classmates from Maryville Christian School. And on this trip, in preparation for preaching this particular passage, God graciously, graciously showed me his desire to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, namely the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So last week in first service, uh, first service prayed around 10 a.m. for a man named Alexander. This This is Alexander. The reason that we were praying for him at that time is because on Saturday afternoon, the students and I had basically finished all of our missions-related work in Guatemala, or so we thought. And so we kind of went more on like a tourist trip. We drove an hour away into the middle of nowhere up on this ridge to, to visit some old Mayan sacrificial sites, some, some ruins that were there where the, the temple and the foundations are still standing. At this place, they used to sacrifice from about 1200 AD to about 300 BC. So if you think about that, realize that at the same time, sacrifices were being made to false gods in Central America at these sites. Jesus was walking around on the earth in and around Jerusalem. So as we walked away from the sites and began heading back to our vehicles, we were kind of walking along the edge of the woods and we looked down and we saw Alexander. He was, he was offering sacrifice on, on basically this flat volcanic rock and, and the smoke was coming up to where we were. So it caught our attention and we looked down and saw a man sacrificing to a false god at the moment we were walking by. So we climbed down so that we could tell him the good news about Jesus Christ. We were able to tell him about the one whose sacrifice makes all other sacrifices obsolete. And hundreds of people I found out later, including River Oaks during the first service, were praying for him around 10 a.m., which was the exact time that we had asked him to pray that Jesus Christ would reveal himself to Alexander in the fullness of his glory. Now, if you want to hear the long version of this story, you can ask Jack or you can ask me or Keith Abernathy or anybody else who was on the trip because it's, it was straight out of the book of Acts. Likely won't see Alexander until glory. I pray that we will see him in glory, but our prayers were and our prayers are that he and his whole household would be saved. He and his whole village would be saved and he would return to this spot as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. 
I've been thinking a lot about Alexander this week. As I've thought about God's plan to reveal to everyone the mystery hidden for ages, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his case, God sent 30 or 35 English-speaking and very crudely Spanish-speaking Americans 1,500 miles to testify to a man who doesn't even speak Spanish, who only speaks an ancient Mayan dialect of Quiche. But when we were down on the ground, I looked to my left and one of our translators was there. And I said, Juan, I know you speak Spanish. Any chance you speak Quiche? And he said, oh yeah. And so we went and talked to Alexander about Jesus. So don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. Don't lose heart for your lost loved ones or your family members who don't know the good news of the gospel. God is at work continuing to make his message come to bear on the hearts of people throughout the world. Now, our passage this morning is Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 13. And so, since we're kind of picking up in mid-sentence here in verse 9, let's begin reading in verse 7. Brothers and sisters, hear, hear the word of the one and only true God. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Holy Spirit, lead us now. I ask with confidence and boldness in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Let's, let's get at the central focus of these verses, of, these, of this section, and then we'll kind of hit on a couple of emphases that are, that are here. So as Paul transitions from verse 8 to verse 9, as he's saying that he was called to preach as a gift by the power of God, to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
he then says, the second part of that is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. But why? That's the plan, but why? What's its purpose? Verse 10, so that through the church. Paul goes on to say that the church displaying God's wisdom by by testifying about God's glory in the gospel is its central focus. In other words, in context here, angelic and demonic beings are, even now, beholding the glory of God through the transforming power of the gospel of grace seen in the church as we interact with one another and serve one another and love one another. So just to summarize this idea here, let's say it like this. The overarching purpose of the church is to glorify God by transfixing the heavenly realms with the transforming power of the gospel. As believers proclaim the gospel and are changed by the gospel. As believers are loved by God. And as we, in light of being first loved by God, as we love others. The authority structures and powers that be in the heavens, both angelic and demonic, stand awestruck by what they are witnessing. They are utterly mesmerized by the church of Jesus Christ. So, as we look at a few emphases in this passage, understand that we need to see them all in light of this main central focus. What then is it that leaves spiritual powers so transfixed that they can't look away. Let's begin with verse 9. As Paul finishes verse 8 and moves into 9, he says that God graciously gifted him with the task of proclaiming the unsearchable, unfathomable, unmeasurable, incomparable worth and glory of Jesus Christ. Now, for any of us who have ever tried to describe the beauty and the power and the worth of Jesus Christ to someone else, you know that very quickly you begin stretching the ends of your vocabulary, unless you're Keith, who has almost a limitless vocabulary. But for for mere men and women, like you and me, we can become even frustrated and despairing because it is so hard to even, even articulate a glimpse of what the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ looks like. In fact, Augustine used to get so distraught with how insufficiently 
he was able to describe the glory of God, that he was only able to continue on in preaching and teaching by realizing that it would be far worse not to at least to attempt to rightly attribute praise to the most holy and most glorious of beings. And Paul was called to preach this unsearchable glory. And, picking up in verse 9, and to proclaim Jesus in such a way that it would make clear to everyone the plan that God had been unveiling throughout history and in the Old Testament, that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. And, and Mitchell, a couple of weeks ago, traced this thought out for us through the Old Testament. So, the first reality that causes spiritual beings in the heavenly realms, to gaze at the church in awe is that this plan of salvation is for everyone. So let's be clear. There are not just two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. I mean, that's, that's true, of course, as far as it goes. But the Gentiles are not a people group in and of themselves, but they're, they're a, giant, a giant bucket made up of thousands of different people groups from every tongue and from every tribe and from every nation on earth. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, as is, as is the church in our day. The church is made up of all who are true Israel combined with all believing Gentiles no matter where they are from, and no matter what they have done. Think about that. You could be committed to pagan worship for 50 years. And when God opens your eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and you are converted in an instant, that person is included. You could work in the sex business for 50 years. And the moment, the moment the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, at that moment, you are saved. Imagine the looks on the faces of demons when, when, the, when, the, when the insignificant or the, the, the incorrigible, when they are saved. I just picture them rolling their eyes and saying, oh, come on. That guy? He's a dirtbag. I hardly have to do anything to get him to be mean. He is saved? You've got to be kidding me. But the truth of the matter is that we are to proclaim the good news to absolutely everyone, because absolutely everyone needs their sins forgiven, and there is absolutely no other name given under heaven by which absolutely every person must be saved. From Moroccans to murderers. From Canadians to cannibals from Swedes to the self-righteous, from Peruvians to prostitutes, from Kenyans 
to kings. From Danes to those who are destitute. From the French to those, to those who have been forgotten. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what has happened to you, no matter how in, inconceivable it is to you that God could actually love you, or no matter how beneath your intelligence level you believe the cross of Christ actually is. The good news of the gospel is for you. The good news of the gospel is for you and for anyone else, absolutely anyone else who is willing to call out in faith to Jesus Christ to save them. Such is the power of his blood against sin. Such is the power of resurrection from the dead. As believers, we are called to bring to light for each and every person in the world the previously hidden mystery that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which all people might be saved. And, and spiritual jaws drop to the floor when that happens. When we do this, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. And it's put on display in the spiritual realms, wherever the Times Square is of the heavenly places, right? Where all of the billboards are saying one thing, and that is Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the word, the word for manifold here in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God, is the word is the word multicolored. It was often used to describe like tapestries or, or, or cloth. It's the exact same word used in Genesis 37 to describe Joseph's multicolored coat. Isn't, isn't, that just, isn't that just a fantastic way to describe the wisdom of God, especially as it relates to salvation and God's desire for some from every tongue and from every tribe and from every nation and from every color to be saved? One coat of many colors. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all colors. That is, all things in Jesus, things in heaven, and things on earth, which we've already learned in Ephesians 1 and verse 10. And it happens through Jesus' work of redemption. The world is, that is, this temporal world, is, is sometimes referred to as the theater of God's glory. So if the church is, is living out its mission on the stage of, of the theater, then Ephesians 3.10 teaches us that angels and demons are packing out the rows. They're sitting in the seats of the theater, probably cheering and probably jeering as the case may be, as the church fulfills its mission on earth. Brothers and sisters, there is so 
There is so much more happening every second of every day than we can possibly realize. There is so much more significance to your obedience to God and your faithful trusting and your fleeing from sin and your sacrificial loving and your generous giving and your unashamed evangelism and your servant-hearted leading and your authentic worship and your prayers offered to God on behalf of others. There's more than you can possibly see with your eyes at stake. Every, every, single, every single cup of cold water offered in Jesus' name. Every single time you forgive your spouse because Jesus has first forgiven you. Every single tear shed or prayer offered for your lost friend or loved one. Every single time you die to yourself to once again patiently, graciously, firmly, and faithfully shepherd your child and point them to Jesus. Every single time you remind them of the gospel. Every single insult you have endured for the name of Christ Jesus. Every single sexual temptation spurned. Every single word of gossip swallowed. Every single dollar sacrificially given. Every single second of every single instance of you choosing to commune with God in his word and in prayer. Every single time you have trusted God at his word and believed his promises despite your circumstances. Every single effort to love a difficult person. Every single time we seek to obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit in faith, no matter how insignificant our response seems. Every single time it testifies to the angelic host and to the demonic forces that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single time whether we are aware of it or not. Ephesians 6.12 is, in fact, true. Every act of faith attests to the reality that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and every act of faith testifies to the finished work of Jesus that he fulfilled from Genesis 3.1. He crushed the head of the serpent, even as Keith read from Colossians 2, by triumphing over evil on Calvary's cross. Jesus finished the work. He just stomped on the head of the serpent. And every act of faith creates a, a twitch in that tail while the head is crushed on the ground until finally one day it will stop twitching and be dead. Every single act of faith testifies that the power of sin is broken. That the punishment of sin has been absorbed by another in our place. And that the reign of Satan is coming to an end. Praise be to the incomparable Father. Praise be to the glorious Son 
And praise be to the most pure and powerful Holy Spirit of God. In light of these things, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. God has a plan to testify to all of creation about the greatness of his glory. And every single act of faith proclaims that good news. This eternal purpose, the magnitude of this eternal purpose was realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So as we think about these realities, if you believe what I'm saying, and I hope that you do because I, this is what God's Word is saying, it can shake you up a little bit. could shake you up a little bit to consider what is at stake. To consider all that God is accomplishing in us and all that God is accomplishing through us individually and as the church. It can be somewhat scary to think about these things. And, I mean, full disclosure, I can be terrified sometimes. I'm pretty much still scared of the dark half the time. And I look over my shoulder all the time when I'm here late at night, walking down the hallway. There's a lot of strange noises that go on in this place, right? But it's not irrational. Based on Ephesians 3.10, there probably is something following me down the hall trying to discourage me, trying to make my soul despair. So in and of myself and on my own, kindergarten girls scare me. But in Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, I'll say anything to anyone because of Jesus. This is how Paul describes it. Verse 12, we now have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We are in Christ, and Jesus is Lord of the demons. The imagery here is of a throne room. Because of Jesus, we now have full and unhindered access to God at every moment of every day. We need not fear evil, and because we are covered by the blood of Jesus, we are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus, as we come into the throne room, we need not fear rejection from God. We need not fear anything. This is identical to the idea at the end of Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus' blood 
washed away our sin in the throne room of heaven. Therefore, even when we fail, we are covered by the blood sacrifice of our great priest. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we might find grace to help in time of need. Such is the access and the freedom given to us because we are in Jesus. So the reality is we have unfettered access at this moment. At this moment and every moment we have unfettered completely free access to God because we are in Christ. And I don't just mean we have access to God because God's omnipresent, and so he's basically everywhere. I mean, we have access to God in his throne room at his feet. This is the predominant thought I want us to carry with us into tonight as we gather together in this room at 6.30 to pray. Think with me for just a moment about how important and how precious and how valued our prayers are to God. Revelation 4 and 5 give us a glimpse into the worship in the throne room of heaven. It's a breathtaking scene. We'll look at it a little bit more closely tonight at the beginning of our prayer time, for now. What I want you to understand is that this picture of the throne room is, in fact, command central for the entire cosmos. This is the holy of holies. This is the throne from which God Almighty reigns over everything that he has made. The scene in Revelation 4 and 5 has just freakish angels proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The slain lamb is being worshipped with a new song. The elders are bowing down. They are face down and their crowns are on the ground and they are worshipping And there are myriads upon myriads. In fact, it says thousands upon thousands of angels singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is God sitting on the throne of the universe receiving the praise that is rightly due his name. And in the midst of all of this, The elders are bowed down and they are holding bowls of golden incense in their hands which are the prayers of the saints in in this place. Our prayers, our prayers are being offered to the Lamb at the foot of His throne in the holy of holies, in heaven, 
as innumerable angels praise the name of the Lord our God. So, let that boost your confidence the next time you you open your mouth to pray for your lost child or for your neighbor or that finally, finally the Holy Spirit would root out that sin which keeps you in so much darkness. Pray with it. Pray with boldness. Pray with confidence. Confidence knowing that your prayers are so valued by God that in the midst of all of this, they are offered in a golden bowl at the foot of the throne. That's how precious. That's how valued. And because we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit interceding for us while we pray, I would be so bold as to say our prayers are holy. What else could they be in that place? And when that happens, spiritual beings who would just just sift us like wheat and kick us to the side in our own strength. But when they see that, when they see our prayers and God's love for his saints, they look on in awe at the way God embraces the thoughts and requests and the communion of his beloved people who are in his glorious son. The reality is that, that demons curse and angels rejoice in the privilege Christ has purchased for his people. In light of all of this, Paul says to his brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. I know it seems like you guys are getting killed here across from the temple of Diana. I know it's scary. What are you few going to do when the whole world is against Jesus? So let me remind you, brothers and sisters, of what is in fact true, Paul is saying. Think of the reality that was staring the Ephesians in the face. They're, they're a fledgling church in a culture-driven town with a loyal and powerful majority literally hell-bent on worshiping Artemis. And their own leader is writing a letter to them from prison. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Wouldn't it be easy for the Ephesian believers to wonder, uh, here's the thing, Paul. Is all of this actually really true? Everything that you've been describing since chapter 1, I mean, it sounds awesome, but you're in jail. And we're here by ourselves. Given the greatness of the God Paul was extolling, Certainly God would at least be able to keep Paul out of jail, wouldn't he? But Paul has a different God-given and, and, and Holy Spirit-inspired perspective. In verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is your glory. Now, biblically, the relationship between suffering and glory is just fascinating 
biblically speaking, the relationship, what we need to know is, is not just the relationship between suffering and glory is not just chronological, but it's, it's causal. In other words, we don't just say, well, look, you're suffering now, but glory's coming. So hang in there because this is going to feel like nothing one day when you look back on it. Compared to that joy, this will be as nothing. Now, that's true biblically, 100%. But it goes deeper than that. The full biblical reality is actually much, much deeper. Rather, God's purpose is that the process of suffering actually produces and refines glory or godliness in us. Suffering is not a waste of time, something that must just be endured until we get to glory. God is actually using suffering to produce greater godliness and glory in you through the suffering. That is, suffering can generate eternally worthy thoughts and feelings of humility deeper trust in God and fuller dependency on God's power in our hearts and in our lives as it magnifies the worth of the one for whom we are suffering. This is how Paul's suffering is the Ephesians' glory because it's such an interesting phrase there at the end. The amount that the Ephesians are loved by Paul demonstrates their value and worth in his eyes. But there's even more to it than that. His suffering actually gains glory for the Ephesians because by witnessing his suffering, they are able to see the nature and character of God more clearly through Paul's suffering, in a sense, on their behalf. And this is this is basically the the gospel bomb that's embedded in this last section that I pray the Holy Spirit will detonate in our hearts. Because Paul's perspective points us to the greater suffering of Jesus, which secured glory for us. Through the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the one and only Son of God, we will experience the glory of relationship with God forever. We will experience the glory of the new heaven and the new earth. Or even now, because of his suffering, that is the suffering of Jesus, we experience the glory of having God's character formed in us. Even now, we experience the glory of God's Spirit living living in us. Even now, we experience the glory of being placed with Christ in the in the heavenly places so that whether we are aware of it or not, our individual lives and our interactions with one another as the church are testifying to the spirits in heaven that God and God alone is worthy of glory and praise. That he is worthy of every sacrifice made on his behalf and that despite our rather formidable problems as a people, we are a people who love our glorious God. We're jacked up in a million different ways. But by God's grace, through God's Spirit, we really do love God. 
We are a people who love our glorious God, and we want the world to know the goodness and the greatness of his plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't tell anybody about Jesus. But we do believe that because God is worthy of praise, whether we believe that or not. So then, as the church of the living God, in in just a couple of moments, we'll have the opportunity to sing with, that is, gather with the souls of just men and women who have already been made perfect. And as the writer of Hebrews says, we, in a few moments, we'll, we, and I mean we like country church, East Tennessee, we will be gathering with innumerable angels in festal gathering. And I pray by God's grace that we will be gathering with Alexander and his household and hopefully villagers in, in worshipful unity as we begin to praise our God. And we'll be gathering with choirs of angels. Angels, this is an exhortation to you. Sing with all your might. Because we need you to lead us. We're not that good at it. But we want it to be a testimony to the cosmos. To all other angelic beings and to the demons of hell. That our God and our God alone is worthy of praise. So brothers and sisters, let us, let us in a moment sing with exuberant joy. The angels sing loudly. So it'll be deafening and you don't have to worry about anybody hearing you. So just, just, just belt it out. Let's sing with them in a moment and sing these words all Hail the power of Jesus' name. And as we do, may may heaven be transfixed by the transforming power of the gospel that the likes of us are worshiping the King of glory to the glory of the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, thank you so much for saving us applying the glorious work of Jesus on our behalf so that, so that we might not only be saved, but that, that you might come to live in us and minister through us. Thank you so much that you are 
creating in us desires to genuinely worship you and you alone. Father, would you would you release the angels and would you tell them to sing with all their might as your praise reverberates throughout your creation. And I pray that you would bind the demons so that they might not have any influence here, but I pray that you would force them to watch and force them to listen to your redeemed church. Praise you because it testifies to your incomparable worth. So please lead our time now as we join with heaven to praise your name.